You're listening to What's Contemporary Now, a show about culture, the people, places, and things that together make it up. For anyone in or obsessed with the fashion industry, there's no greater platform than Models.com. I've spent years using the site to discover anything and everything from who works with who to who represents what. It became my greatest cheat sheet when it was time to make informed proposals and key decisions. As the largest aggregate of information, it comes as no surprise that it's become the number one reference database in the entire business. With over 30,000 talents and creatives listed and 3,000 brands and publications active every day, Models.com is over a million visitors per month. As the go-to not just for creatives and talents, but any professional in the beauty, fashion, and luxury industry, its Pro Features members are able to search with specific filters and cross-reference pretty much anything. The only thing better is the fact that with access to your profile analytics, you can see exactly which brands and media are paying attention. Whether you're a fan of the creative industry or a member of its community, Models.com is where you'll find exactly what you're looking for. Tom Bedridge is one of the industry's multi-hyphenates that sometimes wears the writer or editor hat, while on other occasions preferring that of the creative director. With a seemingly inapplicable bachelor's degree in philosophy, Tom's episode corrects that inaccurate assumption with a series of statements that somehow makes us all want to go out and get one. His hyper-chill but impressive understanding of world-building and the interconnectedness of everything creates context for what we've been witnessing with the more commonly practiced habit of combining editorial content and commerce. While magazines and retailers have historically remained separate, listening to how he keeps consumers engaged feels like a sign of the inevitable future for others as well. This is Tom Bettridge, and we're talking about what's contemporary now. Tom Bettridge, as always, we like to start at the beginning. So before we jump into the professional story of it all, what were the early years of Tom Bettridge like? So I grew up in New York City, also went to college in New York City. I studied philosophy and, you know, I was really interested in critical theory, a lot of like Gilles Deleuze, Michel Foucault type of stuff. And that actually led me into getting interested in art history because I actually Mm -hmm. found that like a lot of the most interesting applications of some of the philosophy I was reading were taking place within art criticism. So I sort Mm -hmm. of like backed my way into being interested in art through this interest that I had in philosophy. And so then after I finished school, I moved to Colombia in South America to Medellin and started like an art space there that was open for like a year And then afterwards, I was working for a gallery in Bogota. And why did you choose that region specifically? I had a lot of friends from that region, and I speak Spanish. And when I visited, I was just really fascinated by how much the society was rapidly changing Mm -hmm. and growing. The year I was there, a lot of Colombians were like getting on social media for the first time. The economy was transforming really rapidly. The art market was growing really rapidly. And so... I was really attracted to this idea of being in a place that was changing so fast. Mm -hmm. I found the idea of like working in art in that context a lot more interesting than what I had seen growing up in New York of just like blue chip galleries, people my age basically just like interning or like sitting at the desk, like handing people press releases or whatever. Mm -hmm. That was my idea of hell. So like I I wanted to go (laughs) somewhere where I could make more of an impact, even if it was an uncertain terrain. Then at what point after that time spent over there, did you decide to jump onto the fashion side? Fashion for me, it really came through my love of magazines. Mm -hmm. So like when I was in school, I actually skipped doing a thesis because I ended up editing three magazines on campus. I was like the editor of the philosophy magazine, the literary criticism magazine, even though like I don't know that much about literature. (laughs) And, you know, even the architecture magazine, I helped edit that. And like, I just really loved this process of curating a group of voices, finding material, 
addressing the theme from a lot of different sides. I think in the magazine world, the only two things that were still kind of alive and kicking when I finished school were fashion and like tabloids. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I kind of chose the former, even though like I'd be curious to work at a gossip magazine at some point in my life. Maybe when I'm retired, I could write (laughs) headlines for the New York Post or something. Well, you do wear multiple hats, one of which is, of course, creative director, which we'll get into, but also editor and writer. So which of those three things was your first love or the sort of chief identity of it all? So I always wanted to be a writer ever since I was really young and I loved writing, but I have a kind of fraught relationship with writing because I find the process of it so mentally taxing. I'm someone who likes working with other people. Mm -hmm. And so this kind of like life of a writer cloistered in your apartment, slaving on something like that didn't really suit my personality. So when I got into editing, something really clicked because I was like, okay, like this is a lot like writing, except you're doing it with a team and you're like working with writers, you're working with other editors. And that momentum of working on a team was a lot more fulfilling for me than being like alone in my room, Mm -hmm. like spiraling. And in a way, I think creative direction, it's almost like the third dimension of that, where it's like you take a story that's written and then suddenly now you're like adding this like visual component to it. So for me, the creative direction thing really stemmed directly out of wanting to create like a compelling visual to like accompany whatever story I was trying to tell or whatever story my magazine was trying to tell, you know, because we live in a world that's like a visual economy, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm a very pragmatic person. Like I don't want to stick to my guns and be like, you should just like it because if you read it, it's great. I want to create that doorway into a story that's exciting for people and gets more people's attention. So creative direction was never a target for you. It was almost a byproduct of what it was that you were already doing and born of necessity along the way. Yeah, like I think it's almost like the equivalent of like people who maybe start out in screenwriting and then they want the movie to look the way they want it to look and so they become a director. You know, mm-hmm. it's like I think it, for me it was like that kind of progression. I like the idea of having 360 control over how a story looks and appears. And so I watched people who are great at doing it and learned how to do it. And what was the first foray into creative direction for you? So my first long-term magazine job was working at O32C. I was there for like four or five years. And the founder of O32C, who's like a mentor of mine, is a genius creative director. I would kind of watch how he worked and how he found his angle within Mm -hmm. the process of like working in a group and kind of extracting the best from collaborators. And so I think watching him do that, doing certain projects there myself. And then I think once things started at Interview Magazine, working really closely with the creative director there, figuring out what the visual signature for that magazine would look like. I think Mm -hmm. that was like a pretty important like immersion period for me Mm because, you know, the fun thing about Interview is that we published it like every two months. So it was this kind of like rapid fire, like okay, we need to do 10 shoots, 12 shoots within six weeks. And we were all just trying to figure out what that would look like, how that would look, et cetera. And philosophy is something that if you were to mention it in the context of fashion, even a decade ago, it would feel so tangential and even far removed. But today, I think there's a little bit more proximity between those two subjects somehow. How do you think having that degree impacts the way you approach your work within the industry or even think as a creative director? Well, the thing about philosophy is that When you're doing philosophy, you're really in the business of making connections Mm -hmm. because like a philosophy is a system and then you're able to create systematic thoughts that apply to a wide variety of things, right? So if you're talking about an idea like historical materialism, if you're like a good scholar of that idea, you should be able to apply that to 
a photo shoot with Kendall Jenner, or you should be able to apply it to, you know, the speaker of the house being elected. We live in this time of overstimulation where there's so many things happening. There's so many images out there. Editors or creative directors, we almost act as the people who connect those things together and make those connections that maybe seem far, but then when you put them together, they make perfect sense. And so that to me is a lot like what philosophy is about. That's really beautifully said. That's definitely a lot to think about. I love that. And speaking of connectivity, obviously Essence is a digital platform and very much an early adopter in that space, having recently celebrated its 20th anniversary. You joined the company just under two years ago. Walking into a role like that with a particular company like that, were you approaching their history the same way a designer would arriving at a house that had a story to tell before they decided what that future looked like? Or how did you first jump in? What's really special about Essence is that in fashion, where a lot of brands and ideas are based around these kind of personality cults, Essence is really like an egoless company. We try not to make it about who's creating the thing. We really try to sort of quietly put something out and just let it speak for itself. And I think in that vein too, and this was like when it comes to the 20th anniversary, we wanted to create something that celebrated how long we've been around, but that was totally anti-nostalgic, anti-heritage, right? Because normally when you talk about anniversary in the context of fashion, you're like, let's talk about the moment that the founder did this, or like, let's talk about the codes of the house. Whereas like Essence is really about futuristic thinking, looking forward, innovating. We wanted to create kind of like an anti-anniversary anniversary. And so I think that was like really what suited our personality and our brand DNA better. Mm-hmm. You know, so then what we did was rather than doing a kind of retrospective, we basically engaged 20 different creators or designers to make something new that we would launch on our platform. That for us felt more like how we'd want to celebrate things than being like, let's do a walk down memory lane of essence. That's just not like we're not a backward looking brand, which is probably a huge part of the success, right? And how did you go about choosing the people you wanted to include in that particular lineup of 20 partners? So that was a place where, you know, I really leaned on the body of knowledge that like our merchandisers have. Our women's wear head merchandiser, our men's wear head merchandiser, they've been with the brand for a really long time. They know those kind of pivotal moments and people who kind of like change the tide for the brand. And also brands that even if they're not part of our past, we feel like they're going to be a big part of our future. Mm -hmm. So that was a place where I really kind of leaned on the experiences of the people who'd been at Essence for a long time and those deep relationships, right? Because like a lot of brands, they made products for us that, you know, they wouldn't bother making for other retailers. It's actually not that profitable to make like a one-off special product, you know? So like it was really like a family affair in that sense. It's incredible. Again, Essence was an early adopter to the digital space, which is now far more populated and other multi-brand retailers are being forced to innovate in the digital space because it is becoming such a primary channel for consumers to purchase through. How do you go about not only maintaining market share, but also catering to a global audience? Clearly there's nuance in terms of regions, but how do you guys manage that? I think for us, it comes pretty naturally. Essence has never had the burden of having to adapt to the digital You know, it's a digitally native platform. And also like our consumer is really young. You know, we have consumers of all ages, but culturally we're very aligned with digitally native shoppers. Mm -hmm. So for us, it's all about engaging 
that customer on the level of the brands they're into, the brands that they're not into yet, but they should be into soon. That's where content comes in as a really important tool. Instagram, TikTok, those are kind of like the digital water coolers of our generation. And so if you can participate in that conversation, you can have mind share, you can steer the conversation, you can laugh with people, you can get people arguing about all the issues of today, et cetera. And so I think really existing in that terrain constantly and always having something to say, that's a big part of keeping that mind share with audiences. And historically, if you looked at something that was commerce-based, you wouldn't necessarily find editorial content and vice versa. Magazines would, of course, sell ad pages and ads, but typically their content would be editorially driven, whereas now you have this hybrid model on both sides. In essence, is a perfect example. You guys invest quite a bit in editorial content. How important do you think it is to have that? And what role does the editorial content play in world building for the consumer experience? I'll tell you about that in the abstract, and then I'll tell you a story. So when I talk about content in relation to a platform like Essence, I like to use this metaphor of a hotel with a great coffee shop. If you live in a neighborhood with an awesome hotel, you're probably not going to stay at that hotel or like maybe like a relative visit, you'll have them stay there, whatever. It's difficult to engage regularly with the hotel because of the cost and the depth of engagement involved. Mm -hmm. But if a hotel has amazing coffee shop, Everyone in the neighborhood can go there every day, maybe twice a day, pull up their laptop, hang out, meet their friend there, whatever. And it's a little bit like that with essence and content. No one buys like a Rick Owens coat every single day, right? Like maybe they do it once a season, maybe twice a season if they're really down with the aesthetic. But you can go on our Instagram every single day, multiple times a day, right? So I think what content does is that it regularizes your exposure to a brand and also signals what brands are all about. Having done some studies in sort of the consulting space about the difference between millennial Gen Z shoppers and older shoppers, the younger generation of shoppers, they really want to know what the brands they like are about. What do they believe? What artists they like? What's their taste in music? What do they stand for? You know, if something like COVID-19 happens, they want to know what they're doing to like protect their workers. If something like George Floyd happens, they want to know where they stand on racial inequality. I think in that context, like every brand either needs to be a storyteller or needs to know how to speak about what they believe in or have opinions or be able to comment on the day. Or they're in this kind of precarious situation of people like projecting what the brand might believe onto them, you know, which I think works for some and doesn't work for others. Mm-hmm. You know, because there definitely are brands that don't say a lot and they have really great affinity, but it's a little bit more difficult to control the message in those situations. And you've had experience extensively on both sides at this point in terms of what we're talking about navigating for a brand that's digitally native, such as Essence, but you've also been at print publications, such as those mentioned with L32C and Interview. How do you find the sort of needs differing between the skill sets required for those two examples of what it is you do? I think in a way, print is like, it's inherently different, but it contains a lot of the same strategies and methods. Mm -hmm. I think of print and codex as this kind of metaphor, where like a magazine is a machine that puts one page next to another page. And the contrast that you can make between page left, page right, is like the philosophical base unit of editorial storytelling, where it's like if you put 
uh, like a painting from the Baroque era. On the left page, you put a picture of a skateboarder falling down a flight of stairs on the right page. Those two things next to each other tell a story that one of them on their own can never tell. Or even like on Instagram, it's image caption. The contrast you make between those two things can really reverberate off of each other in a way that one can't do without the other. So I think even though magazines can sometimes feel a bit old school, they contain all the strategies of all types of storytelling. I think the thing that's unique about magazines and the reason why when I talk to brands, I tell them that it can sometimes be worthwhile to make magazines is that I think you can really control the world and the environment within a magazine and really tell a story that's deeper and more complicated and more iconic. The reason why you still have mega celebrities with millions and millions of followers willing to pose on the cover of a magazine for free is that they know that being on a cover, there's a certain iconicity to that, that their Instagram posts that's seen by 10 times more people will never achieve. You know, so it's like, I think there's a kind of... There's a context difference. Yeah, exactly. And there's like a sort of totality and a sort of historical feeling to it as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's why talent really likes it in photographers as well, because you're printing that moment where it's like, okay, October 2023, this person was the cover, this person took the photograph. That's never changing. That's never getting buried in the feed. So I think that's another part of it that I think is important too. So trying to create parameters or that type of tension and replicate it in the digital space with something like Essence with all of that content and the sort of daily ongoing storytelling component of it, how do you achieve and sustain a common thread throughout that? How do you maintain an identity somewhere in the mix of volume? You know, it's a good question. I mean, it's kind of like the eternal riddle. Mm -hmm. How do you make things varied and exciting without making it too heteroclite and hard to identify? I think that's a place where it's almost like intuition has to take hold a little bit, where like as the editor, you have to say, hey, like, I know if I do it, it's going to have this vibe (laughs) and just kind of let that take hold. Mm -hmm. I think it also comes in like ideation. You create these measuring sticks for what becomes a story that even if to the outside observer, they seem different, they're going to feel the same. I think a really great example of this was when I was working on the rebrand of Interview. Basically, our yardstick was the Andy Warhol era of Interview when it was kind of almost this like fanzine that he created in New York City. And so these kind of like Warhol-esque decisions would become this measuring stick that would connect things together. You know, so even if you're doing an article about a Pulitzer Prize winning writer or doing an article about a trap music singer from SoundCloud, you would base it on this idea of like demented fame and like Warhol-ness that would always tie it together. I think every publication needs those pieces of DNA that connect very different parts. Because if you don't have that, then it does feel random even if the things are close together. Absolutely. So they're sort of back-end program anchors. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you've mentioned in a past interview that young brands often equate content creation with clothing production. And it felt like it made a great deal of sense, but I wanted to dive into that a little bit more because it was such an interesting comment to make. To me, there's a really strong double-edged sword effect there because I actually think that the new generation of designers, in essence, are content creators in a way. In a more literal sense, for example, like the brand GmbH, right? Like mm-hmm. the, one of the founders of that brand. Benjamin yeah, like Benjamin mm-hmm. was a fashion photographer. And so the image making of that brand, the storytelling was like so sharp from day one that 
it immediately felt like a thing and almost like never felt emerging. It always felt like a real brand from the second it started. Similarly, you saw like when Petra Collins launched a label, it immediately felt like a fashion brand because we had a great fashion photographer creating it. I think a big figure in this dynamic too is like Virgil Abloh, like someone who was a genius at image making and social media. Like he could immediately make something feel like luxury or like a brand because like those tools could shape that immediately. You know, whereas like a lot of luxury brands are like making really nice, expensive things and then scratching their head about how to make Instagram posts about it. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. so, <laughs> but I think the double-edged sword of that is that I think you see a lot of people build a momentum in the attention economy and then maybe the operations aren't there. Maybe the production isn't there. Maybe the sales aren't there. That's the part of it that I think is the challenge is that you can win on that level of the attention economy, but sometimes the economy economy isn't in your favor. It's so true. You also talked about this concept of hyper nicheification and the idea that depth can be more impactful than breadth when it comes to an audience. And of course, we've heard in marketing conversations, the notion that a series of micro influencers will have greater returns than buying out some massive mega influencer. But do you think this particular concept of hyper-nichification is uniquely applicable to a designer and a brand, or is it a strategy that everyone should explore? You know, it's funny because actually the way that I came across the idea of hyper-nichification was in the context of Web3. I was doing some strategy work in the Web3 space, in particular during kind of like the NFT boom. Mm -hmm. And I was seeing how it seemed like we were moving from this era of kind of like mass following on a platform like Instagram to eras where a discord with a thousand people could like drive up the price of something so that it had like a billion dollar market capitalization. You know, and that idea of like this kind of like hyper niche where if a small group of people have enough stuff in common, it becomes this kind of like tidal wave was really interesting for me. And I really saw it with fashion because you see how, you know, some of these figures that feel unimpeachable, like a Rick Owens or a Tom Brown, like you don't feel like they're ever going to go anywhere. Like they're the kind of designers who have people who like their entire wardrobe is their clothes and their aesthetic has become kind of like an all encompassing aesthetic that people will fully subscribe to. Mm -hmm. And that to me feels a lot more powerful than like creating an it thing that goes viral. And then you have to make more it things that go viral. So that's really what it was about. But interestingly enough for me, it was an idea that came from tech and kind of, I wanted to like apply to fashion. Well, you've also always sort of pulled from the culture rather than any kind of first degree source of inspiration in fashion, specifically with the work that you've done. Do you believe that sort of marrying those two things is a necessity when trying to achieve mindshare as far as finding that point of convergence between the cultural discourse and how that's applicable or relevant to fashion? Or do you feel like you can still create within the vacuum and ivory tower of fashion as an industry? I just often find it very boring to talk about fashion on its own terms. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of really genius peers who are almost like scholars of fashion and I have enormous respect for them and their ideas are great. But for me, I've always been someone who came from art, came from philosophy, and I was attracted to fashion for the way in which it's almost this kind of large industrialized metaphor for our culture. I see it as a kind of bellwether of like where aesthetics are today, how people project their identity etc. So for me, it's like, I'll always see it on those terms because I just find that to be a much richer story. Mm -hmm. But I will say that I feel like in terms of the industry, 
I feel like you're really seeing this kind of turn to let's make it about the clothes again. Mm-hmm. I think that this sort of like hype bubble had started to burst. People got kind of fatigued on like social media stunts mm-hmm. and fashion. And so you're kind of seeing this return to like, let's make it about the clothes. Let's make it about a certain sense of authenticity or self-reference or et cetera. I don't necessarily have a problem with that, but I personally get more excited talking about these kind of cultural collisions that kind of merge genres and things like that. And you're talking about big examples of sort of cult-followed cultures or, or designers such as Rick or Tom. But you're also a big advocate for emerging designers in Newtown. So within what it is we're discussing, how important do you think it is to have that vertical as well with shining a spotlight on the new kids? I think it's really like the most important thing. You can't just have incumbent creatives controlling everything because all ideas need to be challenged Mm -hmm. and new ideas always need to enter the bloodstream. So I think it's really crucial and something I've always really respected about the essence purview is the way in which they've always been very dedicated to like investing in the new, mm-hmm. putting new designers on their platform, being like the first buyer for a new designer. Some retailers see that as risky, but at essence, they see it as like core to what they do. I was going to say that seems to be a huge part of it. I think if you took out those aspects of newness, it would just feel like some other version of, I won't draw comparisons, but you know, some other version of a pre-existing model, really. In its essence, fashion is about newness. The people have been doing it forever. You go back every season to see what new idea they came up with. And so supporting the new in that context is kind of like, it's not optional. I I Mm -hmm. see it as being vital. And speaking of new, we want to talk about the unavoidable subject with all of our guests this season, which is, of course, the notion of AI and what it represents in terms of new possibilities. So how do you view it? Do you look at it as a positive and negative in addition to your arsenal creatively? So I'm not as smart as a lot of the people who talk about the downsides of AI. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to pretend to have like a groundbreaking opinion on what the end game of it is. But I think what I will say is kind of like a cultural bird watcher of sorts is that we tend to create dystopian fantasies about every new technology. And so I think there's a tendency to think about things in those kind of fatalist terms mm-hmm. that history has kind of shown that that's usually not the case. One of the moments that changed my life was I was in this used bookstore in Harlem that was owned by a really incredible book collector. A lot of guys used to come in and just hang out, talk in this bookstore. And there was one guy who was like, Harlem's gone to shit. New York's gone to shit. It's gentrified. It's over. Let's leave. Blah, blah, blah. And then the guy who owned the bookstore, this guy, Kurt, he took out a book from 1880. And it was like a passage of two guys in 1880 talking about how New York was so much better in 1850 and how it had completely gone to shit <laughs> and was like a cultural wasteland. And so... I think it's really interesting because I feel like a lot of these tendencies we seem to have about the past and the future are a lot more cyclical and omnipresent than we think they are. That's how I feel about AI, but I wouldn't bet my life on it because I think that there's a lot of people who have a much more in-depth understanding of implications of it than I do. Fair, but I think sometimes when you get granular, even if it's academically admirable, you do lose sight of that sort of more macro point of reference that you're pointing to when it comes to historical examples of anything that felt similar. So. I don't necessarily think one is right or wrong. I think it just depends on which timeline you're viewing it through and how long of a timeline, right? Because eventually we'll probably pendulum swing. Yeah, and I think we're in this really interesting time in history where 
the raw power of our technology no longer has a clear purpose or application. Mm -hmm. You know, like you saw that with NFTs where it's like, hey, we have this amazing technology to create like digital assets. But like no one could really come up with like a worthwhile asset to make <laughs> with it. And so it kind of was like, hey, we have like a profile picture with like a monkey on it. And everyone's like, okay. And then everyone sort of realized like, hey, like this isn't actually that valuable or cool. And I think it's similar with like AI where it's like the raw power of it is immense. But you hear a lot of goofy ideas about what to do with it. We're still figuring out what we want to do with it. And, you know, similar with like quantum computing, it's like, you have this raw, unprecedented power, but it's a little bit unclear what it's for, if it's good. I do enjoy that uncertainty. And I think that it creates a lot of interesting ground for experimentation. At Essence, we actually worked on a pretty substantial AI project earlier this year. You know, we worked with ChatGPT to create like a plugin. And our idea was basically like, hey, the way that people shop for clothes when they have a personal shopper or they're at a store is a lot different than the way that they use a website, right? At a website, you choose brand, you choose color, you, know, you can filter, whatever. Or if you have like a personal stylist or a personal shopper, you're like, hey, I need something for my friend's wedding. Or like, I want to dress up like Rihanna for Halloween. Or whatever. Those are the kinds of conversations. Like those are the, that's the discovery process. So what we wanted to do using AI and creating this plugin was to create kind of a chatbot experience where you could have the digital version of that kind of conversational discovery process with fashion. And I think finding ways to create those kinds of experiments is what's needed in a number of different areas right now. If you think about the global implications of something, it's so big and it can be so scary, but just being like, hey, like this is a new tool here's a little thing I can do with it. You know, here's another little thing I can do with it, trying to apply it. That's to me, like, I think as a culture, like how we can probably try to digest things the best. Because, you know, a lot of these technologies, you know, you see the way in which new art forms, new types of music, et cetera, were born from technology. And so I think just like giving space for that kind of tinkering is like key. Perspective is everything, that's for sure. And we would love yours on the idea of what is contemporary now? Contemporary is a lot of things, but something I've been personally thinking about is what a new idea of like offline looks like. Offline and also post-city. So I've been like thinking and talking to people a lot about the countryside as a cultural space, what offline culture looks like in a way that isn't solipsistic or self-isolated. And so I feel like there's a lot of untapped potential and contemporariness to be found in these kind of like uncharted spaces. Because, yeah, I think as like a cultural operator, like you find the contemporary by kind of like swimming to where the ocean's a little more empty. That is definitely probably the most original perspective we've heard to date. And I love it. Thank you, Mr. Tom. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of What's Contemporary Now. A special thanks to our show's producer, Cheyenne Asadi, who makes it all possible. Original theme music by Joseph Top Miller and Chase Coughlin of The Black Soft. And visual design by Aaron Marr and Graham Prentice. Subscribe now to be the first to hear new episodes and for more content follow us on Instagram at What's Contemporary or visit us online at whatscontemporary.com.